We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Everybody, Steve says Fidel. I'm coming at you once again on a Solutions Podcast with Brother Martin Navarro, who you probably seen once or twice on the, the rundown with the Fan 4, as Mike uh, calls it, which we literally just got done doing that about 20 minutes ago, and I asked him to stay on board to talk about why is religious life important? What is it? How to go about vocation-wise, etc. Now, full disclosure, we're not doing this just to promote the Augustinus Oblates. Because not everyone's called to be an Augustine Oblate. But anyway, you can go visit him. We'll have, uh, brother will tell you how to come visit if you want to check them out to see if you are. But anyway, brother, good morning, good afternoon, wherever, whenever you are. <laughs> yeah, good morning. Thanks. You've been a traveling man the last few days, so I, I have no idea where you are. I think you're back home in Florida, right? I am. I am back home. Yeah. Good, good. So anyways, why is the religious life important? What is it and why is it important? Well, historically, I guess it was the vocation that was born at the foot of the cross uh, with Mary Magdalene, Our Lady, and St. John the Apostle. Uh, Essentially, bare bones, it is a response to God's love for us, as every vocation is. Um, But I guess more historically, it began with the first hermits out in the deserts in Egypt with Paul the Hermit and St. Anthony the Great, um, two great, great saints uh, to look into, to read their story, all that kind of stuff. But there were the religious life is essentially it's a lay movement it's it's not a clerical movement it's a lay movement to which clergy may belong uh, because otherwise women wouldn't be able to be religious because they can't be clergy you know so it's a it's a lay movement uh, inspired by the holy ghost when a person wants to dedicate their lives to uh, pursuing a life that was that is very close to the way our Lord lived his life when he was on earth, when he was walking about in Palestine. So I think that the three essential um, vows, because you can add on more after this according to your institute, are poverty, chastity, and obedience. And these particularly come from the gospel. That's why they're called the evangelical from the gospel councils, is that they're not commandments, um, but they're suggestions, councils, about how one lives um, the gospel in, in a more pure way in a sense. So. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. Poverty because our Lord was poor. Uh, chastity because our Lord was was never married. Um, but he also saw chastity pure of heart, um, pure in intentions, a heart dedicated completely to God. And also obedience, being obedient to the will of the Father. And so it's just a way um, to get to heaven, to become holy, in in a way that is, that is very radical. Uh, most especially, I guess, in the early church, we had a lot of martyrs. Um, you know, people were being killed left, left and right from the different persecutions from Rome. But especially after, after that, that period kind of uh, weaned away, um, there were still people that wanted to dedicate themselves, wanted to give themselves in a, in a radical way to our Lord uh, and as, as an expression of their love for him. Um, and so this was kind of one of those outlets, one of those means by which one could, um, could do something radical for our Lord. 
He mentioned the layman because, like, Pope Saint uh, King Louis the uh, Ninth was a layman. He was also a third order Franciscan, was he? Columbus. Yeah, so, it, so even then, yeah, because uh, those that are married or living in the married state also that there's a way for them to participate in the spirituality and the charism of, of these orders as well. I mean, obviously they have their obligations um, according to their state of, of holy matrimony, but they can still benefit from the charisms and the spirituality of these lay movements. And so because it is a lay movement, um, it, it's it's more expandable. It, it doesn't, and, and even then, even clergy, secular clergy can, can even participate because I think St. John Vianney um, and St. Louis IX were both third order Franciscans. So neither of them were religious, St. John Vianney and, and King Louis IX, but they 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 spiritually benefited from the fruits of, of the Franciscan charism. How binding are the vows, with even for laymen? Um, the laymen don't necessarily take the, the same the same vows in the same way as as those who are who are celibates in the community of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But a vow is a vow. It's it's, it's binding until you're you're unbound, until you're you're dispensed. Um, and that actually, I mean, especially now, nowadays in canon law, it depends on what kind of vows, because there's there's private vows, there are solemn vows, there are simple vows. Um, and each say something, not necessarily of how, whether you're not supposed to tell people or not, which is what people think a private vow is. But a private vow, for instance, you can be taken with your with your confessor and dispensed by your confessor. A simple vow, you have to be dispensed by your superior in the community. And a solemn vow has to go directly to the Holy See. And so it, it just varies by who can dispense them. And of course, the reasons why. So you can't just say, I'm out, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. You literally got to go through a big hoopty just to get out if you wanted to get out. Absolutely, because you can take vows even on, on different things. Um, like you can take a, a vow to never drink alcohol again. That's a know, terrible and, vow. <laughs> but, you know, some people, I mean, I say that only because I know someone who's made really good use of it. Um, and so it, it's uh, it, it could only it's a private vow, but it can be it, you don't have to, he doesn't have to go to the pope uh, to be dispensed from it. But nonetheless, it's, it's spiritually fruitful for him. And and his, his confessor is, is this guardian of this. So. All right, so why is this important for the world, the church, and society in general? I think particularly today it's important, um, in the, especially in the traditional movement, um, because we want to restore the church to its former glory, obviously. But one thing that we've kind of lost sight of is what built that former glory. Um, when the Roman Empire fell, it was Benedictine monks that, that built Christendom uh, monasteries. Yeah, the rule of St. Augustine was in existence too. And so there are Augustinian canyons and, and small groups of Augustinian hermits that were uh, around Europe that were, that were, that were building Christendom and, and, and forming souls and creating small kingdoms and societies. And, and Christianity was at the very foundation of this. So as traditionalists, and we want to you know, see that former glory um, again, we've kind of focused our attention more on parishes and more on, on, on creating something similar to diocesan priests with with, uh, with communities that just provide parish priests. Um, but we could almost list on, on one or two hands all the, the monastic communities that are, are keeping the tradition. And of course, the monastic communities are the ones that created uh, the beautiful Gregorian chants that we hear. Like all this, usually there's a book called the Liber Ustualis that was that was put together by some Benedictine monks or at least printed by them. But they really, they kept the tradition. They, they kept the liturgical tradition. And so um, it's very important that we have monastic communities um, first, because 
those that are pursuing holiness in a particular way and consecrate themselves to God merit graces from God to be dispensed to families living in the world. So that's one. They, that's why they're consecrated. We, we speak of consecration like the host, where the host that is just bread becomes consecrated, becomes something more than that. It becomes our Lord himself. Likewise, a, a consecrated person sets himself apart from society, dedicated to live a life uh, just like Christ. Um, and because of that, our Lord is able to dispense um, graces to the rest of the world by, by their by the fruitfulness of their actions, by their pursuing holiness. Um, so we call that merit. And so that's another thing, why reason why we need consecrated souls in, in the church today is because we, we need the graces. We need the graces to combat secular society. We need uh, the graces to combat modernism and all this stuff. So uh, it's, it's, it's essential today to, to rebuild Christianism that we uh, consider the importance of religious life today and, and how we've kind of fallen short or have ignored uh, that aspect of, of the church. Yeah, because everyone worries about the the lower or the lesser priest, people leaving the priesthood, etc. I guess the forgotten one is the less number of religious, since the priests are in the world trying to do all this other stuff and uh, run our parish, go out to other people. They don't have time. They don't really have time to eat, it seems. Mm. Y'all are the ones that are basically praying for them, in a sense. In the spiritual world, you're the... Uh, not the stormtroopers. I don't want to use stormtroopers, but you're like a military going in and doing spiritual warfare for everyone else, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's also something that monasteries provide uh, for the laity that parishes don't necessarily. Like when you have only one or two priests at a parish, um, they have to do a lot of work to create a choir and all that kind of stuff for, for the laity to experience uh, the beauty of, of the divine office of, of doing lauds and vespers in, in Compline. Whereas when you have a monastery and they have these uh, offices in common, it's something special when you can just take your kids over um, at around seven or eight o'clock and, and hear the hear the monks and the nuns chant Compline, you know, in Latin. Uh, there's something that, especially young, impressionable children, when they experience that, when they see that it's the life of their family to go to monasteries and to experience this, and also when they see that even young people entering monasteries, all that kind of stuff, it leaves a lasting impression on children. Um, so when we when we think about what can we do so that our children grow up and they keep the faith they don't just you know go to mass with us um, while they're a part of our household but when they 18 19 20 when they go off to college or whatever um, what, what what do they need to impress upon their hearts uh, to keep the faith and to raise their own children Catholic uh, an experience in monastic communities experience going to the Vespers and, and, and solemn high masses and all this kind of stuff leave, leaves a profound impression on children so there's cloistered and non-cloistered. I'm assuming you guys are not cloistered. And can you describe, or just in case of someone out there going, what the heck is that? What's the difference? Sure. The difference really pertains to the sisters, to, to the women. In the sense that cloistered women are behind a grill, which kind of looks like a cage, but it's a grill. It's not to keep the sisters in, but to keep the world out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they very rarely see their families. If they do, it's, it's between you know a fenced area, that kind of stuff. And there's some pictures out there you could, you could Google of, you know, when family members have a newborn and they want their sister or daughter who's a, a, a nun, a cloister nun to, to, to hold this baby. They put it through a little box or whatever, put it through the grill, that kind of stuff. Uh, and non-cloistered is, is they can go out and do apostles. So they can, they're like teaching sisters. They can teach. They can be nurses. They can, they can do apostolic works, works of charity. Um, so that's kind of the main difference. But for men, um, 
when we talk about a, a monastic community that's closer for men, it's not necessarily behind a grill or anything like that. Um, we, we have more like hermits, like Carthusians, who we never really see. There's, there's few monasteries, but um, again, they're, they're, they're very secluded and they stay within their monastery. Um, they don't, I don't think that they see their family behind a grill or anything like that. Uh, the one time a year they get to see them. Um, but it's just a more extreme seclusion for, for the men than it, than it is for the women. All right, so say somebody's thinking about joining a monastery, but they want to be married, I say. How do you talk to somebody and just say, hey, come here first? Because I remember hearing a sermon saying you can see the, the goodness of secular uh, vocations, say like a wedding, marriage, because you see that all the time, but you don't see the beauty behind the wall. Yeah. How's, how's, what, what you, what's some advice you get to somebody saying, maybe, I just, I don't know, I'm scared. I, I, it's the, uh, a fear of the unknown, maybe. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. Um, it's a good question because I, I guess the well, difficulty for you? here. Well, the, the difficulty here is that you have to be at a certain place spiritually before you actually can give the discernment of the religious life a fair shot. And I say a fair shot because I, I've known uh, some some people that have have visited a monastery with really no intention of ever staying. They just wanted to check something, check a box off the list. You know, say, oh, I did that. I can say no to that. Um, and it was kind of like crisis that we were that we were hearing a lot about um, in regards to Amoris Laetitia whenever that encyclical came out. Because prior to that, there was a lot of talk on divorce and how do, how do we prevent divorce? And I remember Cardinal Mueller saying something like, "What I mean, it, it, what are we supposed to do? Give give." people a religious test and say only if you're religious enough can you get married um, and so it is kind of a, a an, an unfortunate circumstance that you know you don't have to be super catholic in order to be validly married um, obviously being super catholic and knowing your faith and living your faith is going to give you the tools um, to, to, to get to yourself to heaven your spouse to heaven your children to heaven um, but unlike uh, that part of the discernment for, for married life you have to be in a certain place spiritually to be able to give religious life a shot. For instance, you have to be already kind of uh, detached from certain things of this world, detached from video games, detached from doing anything you want because you want when you want to do it, be detached from uh, visiting your friends every weekend, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and you have to really want to live a life for Christ in a, in a very radical way. Um, and so when you when you ask, you know, what do you what do you what do you say to someone? Um, who's discerning marriage before they discern religious life. Well, it depends kind of really where they are. Um, if someone is very spiritual, all that kind of stuff, you can ask them why Why wouldn't they consider a vocation? Um, and really, when it comes down to it, the reasons, the reasons we choose a vocation are what's important because they ultimately need to be selfless. They need to be for Christ. So it isn't that, you know, someone choosing a religious vocation is more holy than someone in the married state because I... I've met several people in a, in a consecrated vocation that have, have appeared on mine. And I don't want to be too judgmental, but whenever they tell me about the reasons of choosing uh, a particular state of life like consecrated, it, it seems for like very selfish motives for, for power, for money, for status, especially status. You know, some, some places in the world still, if, if you become a priest, everybody treats you with a very high amount of respect, give you donate to you a lot of money, all that kind of stuff. And it's very easy to choose it just because of the praise for, for selfish reasons. And so just because someone chooses religious life doesn't mean that, that their intentions are pure. 
Uh, so I kind of want to put that out there, which is why I want to say it's like, it really depends on why you're choosing what you're choosing more so than, than what you're choosing. Um, so what are your but, intentions? No, just kidding. Um, what are my intentions? How, uh, this might be, I, and full disclosure, Pete, we didn't go over these questions beforehand, so he does not know I'm about to shoot him this one. Do A you, quiz. Can you land, can you name uh, the orders and give them their spirituality? Say like, uh, like Dominicans, Franciscans, yeah. why, why are these guys different from these guys? Why is Redemptors different from a, uh, your, your group? Why, are you able to pull that one off? Yeah, so somewhat. I mean, I think uh, each member of those respective religious communities will, might say I, I don't get it completely right or would do it something different. Yeah, we'll, we'll, um, we'll put them on the rack later. Okay. <laughs> but Benedictines really, or I'll start with the Benedictines because they came earlier in the church. Um, but especially the communities that were born very early in the church, their, their, their life is based on a rule. Um, we speak of charisms today and spiritualities, but in the early church, they didn't necessarily speak so much with those, with that vocabulary, um, but they lived a concrete rule of life um, to the best that they could. Um, so it was about keeping the rule, keeping the fast, keeping the liturgical life, all that kind of stuff. And so the spirituality of, of the Benedictines, I mean, it's like a, a 53 chapter book, um, the rule of St. Benedict, whereas the, the rule of St. Augustine, which was written before that is, is an eight chapter book. Um, and it's very open. I don't want to say vague, but it's it's open in the sense that it's the most commonly used rule in the church. Um, so it's very flexible to different spiritualities, different apostolic missions, all that kind of stuff. So for instance, the, the Order of St. Augustine uses the rule of St. Augustine, obviously, but so do the Dominicans. So the Dominicans take the rule of St. Augustine, obviously live it, but have different a different constitution, different, different statutes, um, because their mission their apostolic mission is particularly different to the orders of preachers. They were born to combat a, a particular heresy in Southern France called Albigensianism. Uh, but since that heresy has kind of subsided, um, they spend a lot, a lot of their time preaching and teaching the faith in, in several different ways. So it becomes more flexible even in that sense because there's some Dominicans that teach philosophy, theology, um, and then some that do science and biologists, and then some Dominican sisters do nursing, all that kind of stuff. And so they, they find different ways to do uh, to do what they were originally born to do. Whereas Benedictines, of course, they uh, they pray, some of them teach, all that kind of stuff. Um, Franciscans, they were just born to be poor. They were they were born in a sense, um, well, I think we all kind of know the story of, of St. Francis of Assisi. He heard a voice from, from the San Damiano cross saying, uh, Francis, as you can see, the church, my church lays in ruins, you know, rebuild my church, um, which is kind of funny to say because if, if anybody said that today, they'd be called a schismatic or a heretic, all that kind of stuff. You know, you, you're not allowed to say that the church is laying in ruins. The church is perfect. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't say the church is laying in ruins. Um, so St. Francis really wanted to live a life that contradicted how he, how he saw the, how he saw the church um, act, behaving, acting in his day. And so he wanted to live radical po poverty. Uh, in the rule of St. Augustine, you're allowed to have material things, so to speak, like your community is, is able to own the monastery you live in. Um, you're not forbidden of having the tools you need to do your apostolate. Like for instance, I'm on a computer right now doing this, uh, this apostolic work of, of this podcast. So I'm, I'm not forbidden to having a computer. However, the Franciscans wanted to be so radical in their poverty that St. Francis even renounced the, the right to own something as a community. So even, even the monasteries he was living in were borrowed. So it was a ra extremely radical form of poverty. Um, he was called a heretic for it because uh, of Manichaeism and all that 
all that kind of stuff. But the Pope later on approved his way of life. And then, of course, his immediate successor um, decided to change it back because one of the things that he, the Franciscans couldn't do was receive uh, receive money. They had to receive only goods, so, so no cash. Um, but the, his immediate successor, it was in the rise of the universities in those days. And so it's like, you know, if we teach, we can get money. We can expand our order. We can do a lot more good things with money, all that kind of stuff. And we can see kind of the, the progression of, of Franciscans down to our day that they no longer uh, walk around barefoot or all that kind of stuff. Um, now, I remember but, the, I was at a third order Franciscan vesting, I guess you would say. or It was some lady in uh, she had a lot of bling on. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> I looked at it going, I don't know if he was, I don't know if you're getting the right idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so also the Augustinians, for instance, is just fraternal charity. Like we all know about the the conversion of St. Augustine because of his confessions. He fell in love with God and that was kind of the, the stimulus of um, his whole life. He, he just wanted to fall deeper and deeper in love with God. So the study of truth has to do with that. Uh, loving your neighbor has to do with that. And principally above all, everything else is love of God. So love, love of God, love of scripture, love of neighbor is essentially the Augustinian charism. It's it's not so much reading every single work by St. Augustine, because who can do that? He wrote so much, or memorizing all of his philosophy and theology, as it is so much as living your life with the same heart that he lived his life, to, to pursue a radical, complete conversion of heart, uh, as he did. Uh, to say, my heart is restless, Lord, and so it rests in you. So that's that's why one, one becomes an Augustinian, and, and why I principally like wanted to become an Augustinian was because uh, I just want to get to heaven. I just want to be. I just want to be a saint. Um, and it's my, it's my heart that pushes me. I don't. I don't care so much uh, the job that I do. For instance, whether it be teaching, whether it be uh, administrative work, all that kind of stuff. To me, all of that is irrelevant. It's the heart with which I do my work um, that is that is important to me. So I want to do it with the same heart that Saint Augustine had, a burning heart um, that was in love, on fire, in love with our Lord. Um, the, that charism fits fits very well with me. Who are some speakers? Since we're on the, uh, I was thinking of that stupid joke of who lives in Grant's tomb, when uh, you were mentioning of uh, a Saint Augustine writing the Augustine yeah. <laughs> rule, going, yeah, who wrote the Augustine rule? Um, <laughs> so, who are some uh, well-known Augustinian monks that we say are blessed or saints? That's a good uh, Saint Nicholas of Tolentine. He's one on the, on the general Roman calendar, and uh, we just had one. Right after the Feast of the Sacred Heart, St. John of Facundo, uh, who's also on the general Roman calendar, the traditional general Roman calendar. Um, but also women is St. Is Rita of Kasha. She's pretty big. She became pretty big in the 19th century, the 20th century. Um, besides that, they're, they're few and far in between only because, I mean, the Dominicans and the, and the Franciscans, they very much push their saints to be in the martyrology, um, push a lot of canonizations, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Augustinians were were had very very few saints up until uh pope leo the 13th uh and when, when he beatified and, and canonized uh, quite a few and that was only because pope leo the 13th was uh born in a little town in italy and and raised by by the augustinians the augustinians were um the, the parish priests of his church and so there's um very few known in history but i mean we we have a we have our propers we have our uh, the saints that we celebrate in addition to what's on the general roman calendar like today for instance is uh blessed prosper of aquitaine like no one's ever heard of blessed prosper of aquitaine but i mean we have the we have the traditional offices for all these guys he uh, was on final jeopardy last night <laughs> yeah exactly um so there aren't there aren't too many that are that are well well known uh, but nonetheless there, there are quite a few just 
picking on that one. Why is that? Why? Why? Until Leo was that's the case. The Augustinians always uh, did the work, but didn't really take any of the credit. Um, they didn't. They didn't really push their their saints to be in the in the martyrology. Um, they just kind of just suddenly they did their work um, and just lived their life and didn't really want to promote themselves as the the biggest baddest religious community on the block. You know, they didn't they didn't care of being being the the pope's pet, so to speak. Um, they didn't really care of have, have a lot of those those concerns. Um, yeah, actually, kind of a, a similar story is um, the Dominicans actually took the Augustinian habit. Um, there was because uh, Saint Dominic de Guzman was a Augustinian canon prior to founding the the order of preachers, and so he just took their habit and used it. But there was a problem with finances when people saw friars walking around in, in this white habit. Uh, they didn't know which community they belonged to. And so when people would give money to, to those friars, they thought they were giving it to the Dominicans, but they were giving it to the Augustinians or vice versa. And so the Dominicans actually went to the Pope and said, the Augustinians are wearing our habit, tell them to wear something else. <laughs> and so the Pope said, okay, Augustinians, you can wear the white habit in your monasteries, but when you go out of your monasteries, you have to wear that same habit, but in black. And so some of the older pictures you'll see, like there's, there's a picture of uh, St. Augustine um, in an Augustinian habit, black Augustinian habit, talking to our Lord as a little child on the beach because of that story, uh, the Trinitarian story. Um, but you can see in his sleeves, he has a white habit because they literally put the black habit on top of the white habit. But that's that's how the Dominicans stole the Augustinian habit. So you, you can see, and it was all because of money because they wanted to re to make sure that they were receiving all of the, the, the money that people wanted to give to them. Um, and so that's kind of how, you know, the Augustinians in one sense were bullied in the history of the church. And the Dominicans stole their habits and whatnot, so. So would you recommend people that go to spend a week or on a retreat to a religious community or seminary first before considering getting married or do, vice versa? Is there, a, is there, I wouldn't say there's a one size fits all approach, but right. you know, what would you recommend on that? I, I would, I, I would certainly recommend um, not courting anybody until one answers this question, um, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend they schedule a visit only because first, before they can give that visit an honest shot and do an honest discernment, they need to, from where they are in, in, in their lives, detach from certain worldly concerns. Like if you're getting married only because you want a really big house and you want a lot of money, you want a, a Maserati, and have all this cut, all this kind of stuff, but just go to mass on Sundays, all that you know, and just pray your rosary whenever you feel like it. You're not in a in a place to go discern honestly. You'll, you'll visit the monast monastery or whatever, and just kind of shake it off and just say, no, that's not for me. What do you know, know about Maseratis? You've been around a lot of Jesuits, or uh, uh, what? I said that. <laughs> actually, actually, it was, it was kind of a funny story because when I was doing my discern, actually before I was doing my discernment, when I was uh, for rediscovering the, the faith, I was going to daily mass at this incredibly modernist church. Um, and I wanted to learn more about my faith. So there was like a, a get together kind of after, after a weekday mass in the morning, it was, this was in the summertime. I was, after, this was like uh, the summer after my freshman year in college. And so I went to the coffee, coffee room, um, to, to, to talk with a couple of the adults. And a lot of them were like reti retirees, you know, all that kind of stuff. And one of them sat me down and asked me if, if seeing a young man at, at daily mass, he asked me if, if I had ever thought about just, uh, the priesthood or whatever. 
with this guy before mass I had, I had seen walking out of a Maserati, this incredibly expensive looking car and into mass. And I looked at him and I just said, why should I give up the things that you yourself cannot give up? Point blank. And he, he kind of you know got red in the face and, and uh, kind of sucked down in his chair a little bit, but it was quite honest. You know, there's a lot of uh, lay people that, that live rather richly um, and they, they, they talk a good line in terms of spirituality, but then they go and ask someone what, you know, you should, you should be religious. You should be a monk. Um, but why should anybody take them seriously? If they, if they themselves are clinging on to the things of this world, how can they tell somebody else to leave them behind? Everybody else is good for telling other people what to do. Usually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, nah, when you saw about that, I was thinking about Alphonsus because like, he, he has a lot of sucker punches pretty much on every page you ever wrote. Uh, if you haven't read it, people, you haven't read anything by Alphonsus. He's only wrote about nice. 70 books. So uh, throw a dart, swing a dead cat, you'll hit a book. Just it, read it. <laughs> get, and yeah, you'll change your life. But so will Augusta. Um, yeah. One reason I mentioned that about the, uh, the other, other orders is say, like, you want to get into the right order, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. somebody that's more contemplative, uh, introvert, I guess. You probably don't want to go to the Redemptress uh, <laughs> or Dominicans. But if you're gung-ho, you want to get out there and convert the world by apologetics, things like that, you probably shouldn't go to the, the this guy's Carmelites, maybe. <laughs> right? Right. So it, it's actually interesting. I mean, you mentioned kind of personalities, introverted, extroverted, that kind of stuff. For me personally, I'm introverted. Um, but I wouldn't fit very well in a Benedictine monastery only because for me it'd be kind of too easy. Um in my in my life, I mean, in my in my youth, I found it very hard to, to go up to people and to speak to them. Um, but the more I, I started living the Catholic faith, the more I had this fire to do just that. And so I've I've developed developed um, somewhat a, a way of, of being able to do this. Um, and that's actually kind of how I knew that it was that was our Lord pulling me to do this as opposed as opposed to me um, being deluded. Uh, by something else, by by a past wound or, or something else was the fact that if, if it was my decision, I probably would have chosen something else but because I had a desire that I didn't know where it was coming from, but that was growing in as much as I was also continuing to grow in the spiritual life that I, that I knew our Lord put it there for me. Uh, he put it there for me to uh, to choose, choose this way. And so it is, I mean, religious life is supposed to be somewhat sacrificial. I'm not someone who, who's the center, of the center of the attention at parties, all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, when there's a party, I go and I, I go and talk to people. Uh, precisely to build friendships because friendships are, are the is the way to get people to tr- trust what you have to say, especially when it's about the gospel, because no one's going to trust just some random guy saying, oh, Jesus Christ made, you know, made me happy in my life. OK, uh, money makes me happy. But when they truly get to know who you are and your past, where you've been, what you've done, the decisions you've made, and they can kind of see really that it, it was our Lord um, that changed this person's life and could possibly change mine for the better. You know, they want, to, they want to be able to look at you and say, I want what they have. And so through friendships, you're able to do that. So that's kind of uh, what inspired me to choose something more apostolic um, was because I was I had this desire to do something that I didn't naturally want to do. Yeah, because doing this isn't natural, right? It's natural to get married, have some kids. You know, exactly. It's not natural to say, ah, I'm done with all that. Those are all goods. You're giving it up to do this. So you're going against and- the grain, right? Yeah, if you wake up one day and just say, I want to be celibate, don't go see a vocation director. Go see a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, and that's another thing, too, about celibacy. Like, what for? 
a lot of people think um, that it's for practical reasons. You know, you, you, you don't have to, the church lives off of off of alms, and so you don't have to pay for children or whatever. Or you're ugly, you can't reason. get a date, I'll just become a monk. Exactly. And so, it, so the reason why one is so the reason I'm so is because I'm madly in love with someone. I'm madly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it only makes sense uh, for me to give my whole mind, heart, soul, body to someone that I'm madly in love with. And so I'm celibate because I am madly in love, not because I, I need to, I, I don't want to deal with marriages. I don't want to deal with the obligations or uh, I just, whatever, you know, I'm, 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 I've given because I'm madly in love with someone. And so that's what one thing I, I wish more people understood about celibacy is that celibacy means love. Celibacy means love. It means being madly in love with someone. I remember hearing somebody it was a priest talk about saying that uh, you might be built for like a Jeep and you're trying to get over a mountain, but you're taking the road instead of going over the mountain versus somebody else might be built as a, say, Cadillac. And they're trying to go over the mountain off-wheeling it rather than using the road. Can you still get to you? We're all built to get to heaven. If we choose the wrong state of life, can we still make it or is it just going to be a little bit harder like taking the caddy over a rocky terrain instead of using the road you can still get there but it's going to be a lot more work yeah well there's absolutely no guarantee that you'll get there they're both ways to heaven for sure marriage uh consecrated life they're both ways to heaven and if you choose the wrong one i mean our lord won't abandon you he won't stop loving you simply because you choose the wrong one it might be more difficult like you said you know jeep choosing the road as opposed to the terrain or whatever or the cadillac choosing the terrain is rather than the road um, i thought about maserati but you already used it yeah exactly <laughs> that probably would have even been a better example because yeah and, and so it, it could be difficult but nonetheless um one becomes a saint by being faithful to god and so if you had a religious vocation um but because you were attached to this world or whatever else you choose marriage our lord's not going to abandon you like once you take, once you make those vows, once you make those promises, um, to be faithful to your spouse till death do your part, that's what God wants for you. God wants you to do that, and through the sacrament of holy matrimony, He's going to give you graces to be faithful. Um, that's what's also important. That a huge distinction between getting married sacramentally versus you know not even getting married or you know civilly, all that kind of stuff. I have to explain this to a lot of college students is that you know, when you get married civilly, first of all, you're not legitimately married, in which case. Um, you know, certain circumstances with, with Catholics. Um, and so you won't have that that grace through the sacrament to actually live that state of life. But when you get married as a sacrament, you have that grace. Um, so that, that's the thing too. And when, when, when priests leave the priesthood, like when they were ordained, they have the grace to be faithful. They have the grace. St. Augustine said that if you didn't have a, a vocation to be a priest, once you hit lay, hands are laid on your head, you do now. Um, and so whatever whatever sacrament you choose, whether it be priesthood, holy matrimony, or you take vows in the religious life, um, God, can, God, God, God is faithful. He's always faithful. And so you will have the grace necessary to get to heaven. Now, it might take a greater response on your part because of whatever circumstances you didn't have that vocation or whatever. But nonetheless, you can get to heaven still. Yeah. Just to wrap it up, uh, tell people how they can see more information on your order and uh, I'll put everything again, if it's always in the show notes, which will be below the video. Click the show more thing. Boom. There you go. And so we have a website, www.oblatesofstaugustine.com. Uh, Saint being ST. Um, you can read a little bit about our, our history and, and what we're trying to do as a, as a new community. Um, right now we have, we're um, 
um, eight weeks into our 10 week fundraiser, uh, $10 for 10 weeks, 10 for 10. Um, we have, we have a give, give butter crowdfunding campaign. Our original goal was a hundred thousand. A couple of days ago, we surpassed that. Uh, so we raised it up to 150. And so two days after raising it up to 150, um, we're at 130,000. So we're almost even to our second goal. Um, so it's pretty, pretty clear to, to us that, um, divine providence wants, wants this monastery. So if you're willing and able to help us out, um, you can visit our, our give butter campaign through our website as well. Do they contact you if they're wanting to think about coming down to a visitor? Or yeah, so on our, on our, you can contact us through our website as well. Uh, explain a little bit about yourself and, and um, which, which, how long you want to visit, what you want to do, where you are in life, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'd be more than happy to have a Zoom meeting with, with, with anybody, even if it's just in general. I've had, I've had people ask me just to talk about vocations in general and give them my story a little bit and help them along their way as, as well. So I'm open to that as well. Not just, you know, if you want to enter our community, but if you want to just talk about vocation and all that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm perfectly willing and able to, to Skype with anyone. So Very good, brother. Appreciate it. Uh, any final words? Thanks for having me on. God bless. <laughs> you, you too. Short and simple. <laughs> you too. <laughs>